0: To the Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now, over to your host, James Riley.
1: Hello, I'm James Riley from Innovation Oz. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. Today I'm talking to Lyria Bennett-Moses. She's the Director of the Allens Hub for Technology, Law and Innovation and a Professor at the University of New South Wales. Lyria, why don't we start by having you just explain a little bit about the Allens Hub for Technology, Law and Innovation and what your role is.
0: Yeah, the Allens Hub for Technology, Law and Innovation is an independent community of scholars based at UNSW Sydney it's a partnership between the law firm Allens and UNSW Law. And what we aim to do is to add breadth and depth to research on the diverse interactions among technological change law and legal practice. We also seek to be involved and enrich both academic and policy public debates and drive considered reform of law and practice. And that involves both sort of scholarship as well as engagement with the legal profession, the judiciary, industry, government, and the broader community. I'm a professor at UNSW Law. I can't even say exactly what that's going to look like. The faculty is evolving, so it's going to be called the Faculty of Law and Justice, and there's going to be three schools, so I don't even know what school I'm in yet. This is all the workplace restructure, so that's harder to come up with an exact description of.
1: Yeah, Ryan. Right, okay. The Allens Hub is kind of bang on the areas of great contention right now between law, ethics, business, everything. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I first started doing research around law and technology, which was back in 2004, It wasn't sort of something that most people thought about or were concerned about. I think there are particular developments that have really changed that. It's gone from looking at particular technologies. So when I started, the sort of hot topics were things like nanotechnology or reproduction or some of the sort of very specific things. I think now, particularly around the sort of developments in things like artificial intelligence, it's become much more, I suppose, central to everything to really understand these questions. And so I think, yeah, it feels like there's a lot broader interest than they used to be.
1: And just as a, the broader statement, the law has never appeared to keep up with the demands on it based on by technology or by new innovations.
0: I always think that's an unfair criticism. And I've written on this as well. So there's lots of metaphors that get used, you know, hares and tortoises, you know, law is always behind, tech is always ahead. Part of that is, is I think, marketing. Tech has, you know, the feeling of being very forward-looking. But realistically, there's a question about what you can ask law to be. Law is always about how you regulate, run, manage, govern, if you like, society, and it is always written in the present. You can only think about how should people behave, what should people be allowed to do and not allowed to do in the context of what kinds of activities are possible. So, if I rewrote road rules right now, and I said, I'm going to write road rules for cars that can overtake in three dimensions... And I want, you know, the government to seriously look at the road law legislation and draft that because maybe in the future we'll have flying cars. I think they'd look at me like I was completely mad. We don't need law for cars that can overtake vertically because they can't. So, law is always about what's now possible. It might go a little bit into the future. It might extend out to sort of think a little bit ahead, but it can't be about things that aren't happening yet and that people probably don't even know what's going to happen in the future. And it wouldn't be better if it was. You know, road rules would not be better for having those kinds of rules in them. So, I think what can we ask law to be? The best way I'd explain it is we can ask law to be written as much as possible, within the limits of human imagination, written in such a way that it addresses the problem and doesn't actually over-fixate on the mechanisms through which that problem arises. Because if you can do that, you can ensure that law is as adaptable as possible as those mechanisms evolve.
1: So, I guess in relation to big tech, they tend to push boundaries a fair bit and uh just get on with things and ask permission later. And that would certainly be the case in terms of data collection and privacy and and some of those sorts of issues. So in that area, you could argue, I don't know if you could argue that the law's behind, but certainly it's been stretched and tested
0: uh, so, there's a question about, I mean, that really comes down to, I suppose, a question about compliance and the question of whether, I mean, there, there are rules about handling data. You know, there is a Privacy Act and so forth. Part of the challenge there, it's, it's a bit of a combination of things, I think. So, part of the challenge is, is that you've got, in the tech industry, you've got US companies which operate under very different laws and aren't necessarily all that familiar with the requirements of, of Australian law. I think they're becoming more familiar with the requirements of European law over time because of the, the, the various penalties and court decisions that have been made against them. I think there's also a sense in which startups have a different orientation towards law, maybe than more advanced companies. So, you know, Google would be a really good example of that. I teach a course where we go have excursions with Google. That is not a company that is going to be a cowboy, right? They they have enough assets. They can be sued. They have to make sure that they comply with the law. They always have the potential of being a defendant, right? So, you look at, you know, more established companies, even in the tech space, and they're much more cautious. But certainly in the startup space, yes, there's a sense in which maybe the sort of legal compliance is the last of your issues and it can be ignored. But I'd say that, yes, I suppose the short answer to your point is yes. I don't know if that means law is behind so much as there can always be compliance challenges, but perhaps particularly in areas where there is a lot of sort of startup type activity as well.
1: Okay. Let's move on to the topic of the day. This is predictive policing. And I guess this is just one of a a long line of things under the broad heading of application of AI that brings up a bunch of ethical questions or implementation questions or just concerns or whatever it is. So what are the issues here? What are we dealing with? What do we mean by predictive policing? Right. So that's a
0: good initial question. So predictive policing is essentially police asking a different kind of question, right? So instead of saying, how do we solve this crime that's already happened? It's reorienting the question to say, can we predict, and not a hundred percent certainty, not minority report, but probabilistically, where, for example, crime might take place in the future. So can we, for example, predict the crime is more likely to take place in this neighborhood over the coming week? And the answer is You can up to a certain point. So, for example, there's a lot of evidence that burglaries, you can actually start to do some predictions about where future burglaries will take place. Why? Because some places have higher burglary rates than others and you can look at the data and see those trends. And also because when a house is burgled, you actually increase the probability that other houses in that neighborhood will also be burgled because burglars like to go back to familiar locations where they know they've been successful before. So, based on those kinds of data points, you can make predictions. Now, You mentioned AI in this context, and I kind of want to unpack that a little bit. There are different kinds of predictive policing tools. Some of them are literally just Excel spreadsheets, and some of them use machine learning or more complex techniques. So, the range of techniques that's used to be able to produce these predictions is actually quite broad, and the word predictive policing tends to apply to all of them, not simply those that are more technically sophisticated. I think that answers that part of the question. I know that was the second part of the question. You might need to remind me of the first part again.
1: Well, the first part, I guess, you know, what are the issues that we're dealing with? You sort of have gone through it somewhat, but I guess they get more complex the more technological layers you apply to that spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, I think there's a few different issues. So, one issue is around the sort of data-driven inferencing, right? And really happens whenever you've got that kind of compounding of data. And, you know, people talk about bias in this context, but but I'm going to unpack that word a little bit. So, the first thing that can go wrong is what's your data source? So, what data are you using to work out what crimes are actually taking place in the world? Because there is no database of that. There is absolutely no database of all the crimes that are actually happening or have happened. There are databases that might include crimes reported to police, databases that might include, you know, things that have led to conviction, databases that might include, you know, police investigations, you know, and so forth, et cetera. But none of those is an accurate record of crimes that have taken place. What does that mean? That means several things, but it's biased in different ways. So, you know, if you look at crime databases, an obvious one is it's going to underreport domestic violence, Another example is that particular neighbourhoods, crime might be more likely to be reported in some neighbourhoods than in other neighbourhoods because people who live in those neighbourhoods, when they do get burgled, are more likely to call the police and report it, whereas in other neighbourhoods, maybe there's distrust of police or they won't report it. So, there's going to be all sorts of things that feed just before you've even done any processing of anything. The data itself is not going to be really, it's an imperfect representation of reality. Then you can do things like, you know, look at some of the issues that arise in how it's processed. Assumptions that are made in that and so forth. So, one example in predictive policing is a feedback loop problem. If, for whatever reason, you have a particular location come up as crime is likely to happen here, what happens then and what the predictive policing programs are about is sending more police to those locations. So, police patrols will change so that they spend more time there in order to pick up the crime and reduce those rates. But what happens, of course, is that if police are spending more time there, The other side effect of that is more of the crime that's happening there ends up in police reports, which is of course your data set, right? Because police will observe things and be around to be reported to and so forth. So, you'll drive, in a sense, you might have an initial thing that could just be an artifact. It could be random saying crime's happening there. But once you start sending police there, more of the crime that takes place there relative to other places gets into the database and the system will keep sending police there. Now, That becomes particularly problematic if, for example, policing is initially quite racialized in terms of which neighborhoods are being policed, because what will happen is those neighborhoods will just keep coming up and they'll keep being over-policed, even if in the real world, they're not actually as much high risk as the programs are suggesting. So, that's one kind of problem with predictive policing. And I could go in and talk about all the other ways in which bias can arise, but I think that gives a bit of a flavor. And the other kind of problem is what I'd call the accountability problem. So, when police are normally, you know, making decisions about how they do policing, it is very easy for them to give explanations to people about how they do it. Maybe the patrols are just randomised and police go everywhere. Maybe they have a particular strategy and so forth. But once you start to use tools part of the story becomes black boxed. Because unless the people who are accountable are able to understand what's going on inside that black box, the answer can only be because the tool sent us there or the tool told us. And once you start getting those kind of answers, you get accountability problems, both internally and externally, you know, in terms of policing. That would be less problematic if you actually could give, you know, uh, if, if part of your explanation was, we know these tools work. And so, we're driven by full evaluations, right? We've done evaluations. We know that this actually has these wonderful positive impacts, reducing crime and so forth. But that actually doesn't exist. So, there are no… There is certainly, what I'd say, mixed studies in, in the academic literature on effectiveness in terms of reducing crime of these kinds of tools. So, there isn't that ability to sort of say, we know it's effective, we know it works. We don't understand why it works, but we have actually done the evaluation to demonstrate that it works. So you can't really do the sort of accountability through either mechanism properly.
1: So, if any of these things get down to individual level, like someone's identified as a likely drug so dealer or, or something along those lines? It's most predictive policing programs are location based, but there are some that are
0: individual based. Chicago ran something called a heat list, which was an example of that, where they had individuals that were based. And in fact, in New South Wales, they had a program called Police. Come up with the best names for things. Um, Stomp, which was the STMP program, which was designed to identify high-risk offenders. Now, the interesting thing about that is, I cannot tell you what technique they used to identify any of these people. But what I can tell you is they did have a list of people, particularly young people, at risk for offending. And they produced that list and they did a bunch of things like knock on people's doors and say, we're watching you and whatever, to try to, you know, discourage them from offending.
1: But those programs could be outreach programs where they're trying to engage with them, bring them into the the light, into the, you know, the soft arms of the
0: police. Yeah, so… Predictive policing lets you do all sorts of different things with it, right? Um, Predictive policing, as I said, in the location one, it's largely used around police patrols, or at least that's how it's marketed. It's designed to change the way patrols are done to make patrolling more targeted and strategic rather than just random. In the case of heat lists or, you know, identifying potential offenders, yes, it can lead to a whole range of different things. There's still a real question, though, about, you know, I don't necessarily want to frame this as you want to be on the list because coming into the light is some kind of advantage. A lot of the time, the interventions are still not directly punitive, but they're not positive. Having police come around and check on you and so forth, most people wouldn't consider that a positive, something that would make their life better. It still matters if these things are biased and all the evidence is that they are, and I'll come back to that particular kind of bias in a minute. You know, if these things are biased and in the case of the STMP program, for example, you're over-focusing on Indigenous youth, then that can have really negative impacts on people's lives and people's experiences with the police. And it could be used for good, potentially, you know, in in the right kinds of ways, you know, providing people with additional resources and so forth, you know, could help. Um, But that tends not to be the way these things are done.
1: Yeah. So, from a policing perspective, these Methods have always been, have ever been so right? Like if if someone gets in trouble with the law, then the local constable says, I'm going to keep my eye on you and they do keep their eye on them. They give them a hard time when they see them and the recidivism reinforces that point and all those things. So the concern is that this just makes it kind of industrial scale automated.
0: I think the concerns are broader than that. So if you've committed an offence before and, you know, you've been arrested and charged and convicted, and you end up on a list of you know the so-called usual suspects we could talk about why that might be problematic but that's certainly been happening for a very long time as you say if you start to look at these kinds of systems you can get on these lists without ever having been arrested for anything or ever having been convicted of an offence, you can get on these lists because your data points suggest that you are like people, and the people that you are like have ended up committing offences. So, it's a much broader range of data than just have you previously been convicted of an offence. And I think that's where it starts to get problematic, and that's where the bias creeps in, because if, for example… You know, and this is, you could see this particularly with Indigenous Australians and Indigenous youth, because we have had over incarceration of Indigenous people for some time. They are like people who've been convicted of offences. Their data points are going to have lots in common with those other people. Do you want to start treating them from a very young age as potential felons with all the door knocking and we're watching you? I'm not sure that's productive or that's the best solution to the problem. And there's also real concerns about, you know, in any event, about the way in which policing becomes skewed along things like racial lines, which are more problematic perhaps. Than other data points,
1: and in relation to your work or the harbour, you know, your role as, a, as an academic. What's your message here? Is it that the law needs reforming, or that these technologies are inherently difficult to implement, and you're urging caution? Like what's your what are you talking?
0: So, urging caution and in particular, you know, there's the marketing spin that can often end up in sort of policing practitioner journals and magazines and things that makes these systems sound really good. But caution, go back to the evaluations question, the extent to which there is effective as some of the marketing might make them sound. So, that's part of it part of it is think about how you're going to use the tool and the hammer and nail problem. I just said these tools can be quite useful for predicting burglaries. They're not very useful for predicting, say, um, domestic violence or kidnapping risk or anything else. So, there's a real risk that if police organisations focus on these tools, they start to be better at or invest more in policing certain kinds of crimes that can be predicted based on location, for example, rather than others that can't be. Um, So, think of it, you know, the limited role it might play in an overall sort of strategy. The next one would be in terms of you were saying what's law's role in this. I don't think it's, you know, necessarily, you know, we need laws to say use or don't use particular technologies in policing. That would seem to me quite interventionalist. I do think we need to think carefully about how the decisions to use these tools are overseen. So, oversight in law enforcement is often quite complaints driven. You know, if someone makes a complaint, then there's a process for that and, you know, different police organisations will have different systems for that. But the challenge with things like predictive policing is what is the oversight for the decision? It's not just to do it or not do it, but also, you know, to use particular tools or to take particular approaches or to use it in particular ways or to have a particular plan to implement it. A lot of the time, the reason these tools perform so poorly is they're poorly implemented. So, you know, what is the full strategy? Who oversees that? Most of the time, you're not going to get complaints about it because most people don't know. People have complaints when a policeman is rude to them. People have complaints when the police hurt them, or you know, arrest them, or whatever. They they'll have complaints about that, but they won't necessarily know why was the patrol car there in the first place. They won't necessarily know why the police keep knocking at my door and no one else's door. You know, how did I end up on this list, or am I on a list? People don't always know those things, depending on the way the program is run. So you're not necessarily going to be able to have a complaints driven oversight system. It needs to be broadened out.
1: Yeah, and very difficult, like even if you knew that you'd somehow been identified and put on a list, I mean, how would you know that that had happened, as you said? But then who do you complain to within the police to dive into the algorithm and find out what the circumstances were were that got you on that list?
0: We're just coming back to the the accountability challenge of these kinds of tools. So, to me, it's an accountability challenge, and what you need to do is to set up the accountability ex ante. There's no point saying we're going to buy this software and we're going to do this thing. You have to think about it within a full accountability framework. You have to think if you are doing, particularly, I mean, even if you're doing location-based, but particularly if you're putting people on on sort of special lists or uh, and so forth and, and, and you know, doing anything in relation to those people, I think it's really important to think well, what is the right accountability framework for that. You know, is there a process whereby people are notified that they're on the list, where they get an opportunity, sort of natural justice style, to come in and explain why they shouldn't be on the list or why it's a case of mistaken identity or and so forth. What is the basis of people being put on the list? Is it only if they actually have done something wrong or can you end up on the list? And this is certainly what we're seeing in some jurisdictions in the US. You end up on the list if you've been, you know, with the stop and frisk type policing, you end up on the list if you've been stopped and frisked. Well, that, is very racialized, right? So, people will end up, you know, black people will be stopped and frisked more than white people. So, you know, more black people end up with having been stopped and frisked more than the right number of times to get on the list. So, you've got a problem there in how you're setting up your system. So, you've got to really think about how do people get on the list? Is it fair? What kinds of biases in the process and the software or the way we're handling data, do we need to think about how do they arise and how are we going to manage them? What are the limitations of the tools? None of these are minority report. None of these are sort of pre-cogs sending you to the exact location where a crime um, is taking place. So, what are the limitations of the tools? Where do they fit in a broader policing strategy? But making sure that that is… Both sensible from a strategic perspective and you've thought through those issues, but that you've got the right oversight in place that, you know, whatever organization it is understands the tools that are being used and has an ability to comment and give feedback to to make sure they're not being used inappropriately.
1: Okay, thank you, Lyria, for joining us on the Commercial Disco. I think this intersection of law and technology is an area that is completely fascinating and one that we'll be discussing for years to come. Thanks very much for joining us.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website. Innovationoz.com to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy, and reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.